So we have a rule at Collective, and that rule uh, is no church jargon. Uh, We actually joked about having a jar that if someone on stage or a leader of one of our teams or one of our collectives used churchy language, they'd have to put money in it. Um, This is just like the Schmidt jar from New Girl. Anybody watch New Girl? Yeah, so you know what that jar is all about, right? So the idea is that if one of our leaders, if one of our people kind of use language that is churchy, uh, church jargon, that they'd have to put money in this jar, and eventually at the end of it, we'd take everybody out to lunch, and it would be great. And so this passion of mine started when I was in college. Uh, because I was often the person confused by that church jargon or that church ling- lingo. Um, some people call it like Christianese, right? Like it's its own separate language. And so I've mentioned this before. I went to Milligan College down in Johnson City, Tennessee uh, to study pastoral ministry. But I didn't grow up in the church. And so going to like a Christian college, I often found myself in awkward situations because I was surrounded by Christian people, but I had no idea what they were doing or what they were saying. I mean, you get that, right? You have that one friend who you know loves Jesus a ton, but whenever they talk to you, they say a bunch of churchy things that you don't fully understand. You know, they're like, I'm too blessed by the transfiguration of the saints that my Abba Father has reconciled me in my journey eternal. And you're looking at them like, cool, I'm glad you had a good weekend, you know? (laughs) That's not a real sentence, by the way. For those of you who are like, is that a real sentence? Well, at least I hope it's not. I don't know. Uh, But sometimes talking to Christians or even going to church can feel that way, right? Like, it feels like it has its own language, its own phrases, its, its own sayings. You know, and the reality is these words all have meanings, and the meanings are deep, and the meanings show us a glimpse of what God's church should look like or who Jesus is, but we don't always know what they are. In fact, about a year ago, a video came out that made fun of this phenomenon in the church. It was called Shoot Christians Say. Go ahead and check it out. Bless his heart. I think he's backsliding. I think I saw him drink. Yeah, but in moderation. I just wasn't seeing much fruit. He's going down a slippery slope. How's your heart, man? How's your heart? I'm just such a words guy. It was a total God thing. I'm blessed. I've been working on my testimony. Is that secular music? We're opening with a secular song tonight. Wait, is this a secular song? Isn't she secular? Which station's The Fish? 104.3 The Fish. Safe for the whole family. You know he's a believer. I think he's saved. I just pray you'd give him traveling mercies. Mm. Pray for all Tyler's unspokens. Mm. Echo that. Just really like to echo Tyler's prayer, Father. I just, I echo that echo of my echo of his echo. I really feel like I'm being released from this, you know? I'm trying to be relevant. I'm just trying to be in the world, not of it. Hey, do you want to join our small group? You want to join my D group? You want to join my cell group? Community group? Access group? Accountability group? Acts 27 group? Dude, he brought it. He brought the word. That service last night rocked me. They're pretty purpose-driven. Yeah, it's seeker. Don't they do seeker service there? I feel like he's gotten really watered down. I don't feel like he really teaches the word. There's not enough meat, you know? Are they non-denom? We have a great Wednesday night supper. Let's invite some dudes over and fellowship tonight. We're gonna have a sweet time of fellowshipping tonight. Dude, we had the sickest fellowship last night. We're going to extreme. Velocity. Ignite. Yeah, I'm going to ignite. The edge. The dive. The bridge. The ramp. Fire. Courageous. Passion. Echo. Reverb. Noise. Velocity. Drive. Elevate. Radiate. 722. 635. 419. Orange. Blue. Yellow. Green. Clear. Neon. Catalyst conference this year. I don't do that because I feel like it ruins my witness. Been struggling with that. I'm really wrestling with that. I'm wrestling with a doubt. Need someone to hold me accountable. I'm really trying to be intentional with her. I'm pursuing her for sure. I'm trying to guard her heart. Guard her heart though, bro. Will you hold me accountable to that? Yeah, well bounce your ass. Bounce your ass. (laughs) So, I love that video. I think a lot of times when we talk to, to Christian people or the people that are in our life or even we go to church, it kind of sounds like that, right? Where they're saying things and you know they have meaning, but you're trying to figure out where it comes from. 
Uh, my freshman year when I was at Milligan, we had a communion service at a small church that was located on the edge of the property called Hopwood. And there was worship and a small sermon. And then we were supposed to, all the, the whole freshman class was supposed to take communion together. But instead of passing a tray like we do here at Collective, they had us all stand up and walk to the front to take it. And so for me, like I didn't grow up in the church. I'd never been to a church that did it that way. And, and it's, there's nothing wrong with that. But for me, it was new. And so, like, I'm looking around, and I'm trying to figure out, like, how everybody is doing this communion thing, because my whole, you know, childhood of church was, there's a tray, you pass it, you know, down to the next person, eventually somebody takes it, it disappears, whatever. And so I remember, like, people are starting to stand up, and I'm watching them, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, like, how do I do this? Like, how do I, know, right, just walking in line, how hard can it be? And so I get into line, I start going, and, and as the closer I get to the person uh, at the end, where there's a person sitting there holding a, a cup that looks like a goblet, of juice and a loaf of bread, I kept hearing these whispers. And I'm like, well, who's whispering? You know, like, who is, who's talking right now? Like, I'm thinking it's like the, the students in the seats. And the reality is, as I got closer and closer, I realized that the girl who was in my line, who was holding the juice and holding the bread, was whispering something that eat, to each person that came through. And so I get to the end, and I rip off a piece of the bread from, uh, from the loaf, and she looks at me, and she goes, Jesus, I'm like, okay, yeah, that's, I mean, that makes sense. And then she looked at me as if I was supposed to say something back. But again, I didn't grow, I've never done this before. I've never experienced this before. This is the first time I've ever, like, taken communion that way. And so I kind of just looked at her, and I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to dip this in the juice now. And so I grabbed the bread, and I dipped it in the juice, and she goes, Jesus' blood poured out for you. (laughs) And I'm looking at her, and I'm like, cool, okay. And she's looking at me, and her eyes get bigger. And she, she was a senior, and so she's, like, looking at me like, like, yeah, like, now it's your turn. And so I look at her, and I have no idea what to say. I have no idea what to do. I've never experienced communion this way. I've never done it this way. And I look at her, and I went, you too. And I grabbed my stuff, and I walked back to my seat. And I remember going back to my seat, and I just felt, like, confused, right? There's nothing wrong with taking communion that way. It's just something that had never been taught to me before. I'd never experienced that. I didn't know the lingo. I didn't know the right words. I didn't know how to respond back to her. At Collective, we never want people to feel that way. We never want people to have questions about what we say or what we do. And part of that includes worship. And that's kind of the reason why Christmas music is so tough, right? Like you sing these beautiful songs, but a lot of times they have words that we don't use on a regular basis. A lot of the Christmas music that that we're singing during the season will use phrases you're like, man, I think that's beautiful, but I don't know exactly what that means. And this is especially true for the song that we're talking about today. And so week one, we learned about Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which was the oldest English-written Christmas song that we still sing today. Week two, we learned about Silent Night, which is the most recorded song of all time. And today, we're talking about O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is quite possibly the oldest Christmas song that we still sing today. This is a beautiful song right? Like when when the band was playing it earlier, I could hear you guys louder than the other ones. This is a song that we love, a song that we know. But I remember as a teenager, when I was singing it for the first time, I didn't fully understand what I was singing. Like I recognized that Emmanuel was like a name for God, right? Like I, I was able to piece that together from the song, but I didn't truly understand what it meant. And so although I could sing the song and not be completely confused, For a really long time, I kind of missed out on the full meaning of those words. And so that's where we're going to start today. We're going to start by talking about what that word, Emmanuel, means. This is the most important part of the song. And Emmanuel means, like literally translated, means God with us. 
And so Emmanuel is a reference to Jesus. When it says uh, God is with us, that is, that is a reference and that is another way and another name for Jesus. Jesus is God with us. Emmanuel, which can often be spelled with an I, is only seen in two books of the Bible. That actual phrase to describe Jesus is only seen in two books. Isaiah, who was a prophet who spoke about the coming birth of Jesus, and Matthew, who was a follower of Jesus. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. So God will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Isaiah wrote this hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. And what he was doing, he was, he was predicting that eventually God would be with us. Matthew uh, wrote in Matthew 1.23, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so Isaiah predicted it, and Matthew confirmed it. So when we sing this song, we are literally singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, O come, O come, God with us, O come, O come, Jesus. We are singing about the birth of God, this child that was born, the reason why we celebrate this season. That's what we're calling out to. O come, O come, Emmanuel dates back to 800 A.D., Yes, 800 AD, not 18, like 800 AD. It started as a Latin chant of monks in the 9th century. Uh, the initial Latin text, there are actually seven different verses. And each verse kind of tells a different story about the need for Emmanuel, the need for God with us. And each verse is written from, this, from the Israelites' perspective, right? Even though it came after Jesus came to, to live on earth, they kind of sing it, and these lyrics are kind of as if you, we are the Israelites, right? Like we are in that moment. We are, we are longing for God. This is why the chorus uh, actually says, uh, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Like it's coming. And so the idea is like putting us into that experience that the Israelites had. With the original chant having seven verses, it was intended that one verse per day was sung or chanted during the last seven days before Christmas. And so when it was written in 800 AD, the idea was a day like today, seven days out, you would sing one verse, verse one, then the chorus. And then tomorrow you'd sing verse two in the chorus, and then so on and so on. Since the ninth century, this song has crossed over from a hymn sung in, a Latin, in Latin to a carol translated into scores of languages and embraced by every Christian denomination in the world. Every Christian denomination in the world. This is important because it doesn't matter what denomination you came from, what denomination you lean towards, or the fact that we're a non-denominational church. It doesn't matter what language you speak. The truth of this song transcends languages and denominations. The truth of this song is so strong that there are barriers that have been taken away. The truth of this song that we need Emmanuel, that we need Jesus. It can break down the barriers of language and denominations and be sung by churches all across the world. The original writer of this song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is actually unknown. But what we do know through, through the verses and, and through the actual uh, seven verses that was originally uh, with the song was that he was a scholar who had a ton of knowledge of the Old New Testament. Once it was completed, the hymn was picked up by many European churches and monasteries and became an uh, intensely important part of the church for a very long time. This was a song that was sang for hundreds of years. 
But sometime in between 800 and 1800, when it picked back up, eventually kind of disappeared. Partly because it was written in Latin, but partly because the, the way that they did worship and the way that uh, the monks did worship with chants, it kind of faded off as music became more popular. And so the song owes its worldwide acceptance to a man named John Mason Neal. He was born in January 24th, 1818, and he was an Anglican priest who was educated at Trinity College in Cambridge. Neil, this dude was a genius. He could speak and write in 20 different languages. But because of that, he would, like, the idea was that as a priest, his ability to read and write in so many different languages that they thought he'd be destined for greatness. But what actually happened is the Anglican church feared his intelligence and his insight. At the time, church leaders thought he was too evangelical, too progressive, and too much of a free thinker to be allowed to influence the masses. So then rather than be a pastor in London, Neil was actually sent to the church, uh, to, to a church in the Madeira Islands off the northwest coast of Africa. Even in this pseudo-exile, Neil refused to give up on God or his own calling. So on a salary of just 27 pounds per year, which is $36, he established the Sisterhood of St. Margaret. From this order, he began an orphanage, a school for girls, and a house of refuge for prostitutes. He also spent a large amount of his time studying everything that he could. It was during these studies that he came across an old Latin chant, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Seizing on the importance of the song's text, Neil, who knew all those languages, translated it into English. And then what he did is he added this tune called Veni Emmanuel, which was a 15th century processional that originated from French Franciscan monks living in Lisbon, Portugal, and he combined the two songs to make O come, O come, Emmanuel. Within 25 years, Neil's work would eventually be cut from seven verses down to five, and it became the song that we sing today. A song that shows a reverence and a deep respect for who Jesus is. A song that's a tribute not only to the birth of God's child, but also to the fulfillment of God's promise to rescue his people. Now today, most of the time when you sing it or you hear it on the radio, you'll actually hear it as three verses and a chorus, and that's, that's the version that we sang today. But even with these changes, and even though it went from seven down to three, the verses have remained close to the original text, and this need for a Savior, this need for Emmanuel, this need for God to be with us. After each verse, we sing a chorus, and the chorus was written as a reminder to rejoice, because Emmanuel is coming. It's almost as if the song was kind of written as a call and response. You sing this verse about the struggles and the strife that you're going through, but the chorus reminds us that Jesus is coming. These verses explain the need for Emmanuel, and the chorus says, don't worry, he's on his way. So today, as we break down the song, we're actually going to start with the chorus, because I think this is the most important part. And the chorus says, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. This verse reminds us that the Savior is coming. And even though the verses talk about why we need Emmanuel, the course was written as a reminder that hope is coming, that light is coming, that God no longer will seem far away, but God will be with us. You know, and even though the chorus, when we sing it, it kind of speaks of the arrival of Emmanuel, right? Like it's written as if the Israelites are singing it through the struggles that they went through. 
What's great today is that we sing that knowing that Emmanuel has come. That we don't sit there and we don't say, it'll happen eventually. That when we sing this song, we have, we have an understanding and a peace because we know Jesus was born. And we know he's come. And that gives us a comfort while we sing it. In fact, the, the version we sang earlier, uh, the last chorus actually switches to, instead of shall come, it has come. Because Emmanuel has come. John 1, 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The word is a nickname for Jesus, but this verse is saying what John is writing is that Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He didn't live separately. He didn't live in a bubble. He didn't function outside of society. He actually put on flesh and became a human being and lived life amongst everybody else. And that, one of the beautiful things about that is that means that Jesus understands what we are going through because he lived a human life. And we know that we no longer have to hope for Emmanuel to come. We no longer have to sing this song as if we're pleading for God to be with us. Because he's arrived. He was born in a manger. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross for our sins to pay that debt. And he resurrected from the dead. God is with us. So the chorus tells us to rejoice. The verses are the reason why we need to rejoice, why we need to know that hope is coming. And what's crazy about these verses, when they were originally written in 800 AD, when we sing these songs and when we sing these verses, we get it. Right? Even though this song is over 1,200 years old, when we sing these verses and we sing about the experience the Israelites went through, we get those feelings. We understand what it feels like to be longing for a Savior, to be longing for God to be with us. And even though it isn't written in 2017 vernacular in the way that we'd read it today, it's something that resonates with us. And so verse 1, this is what it says. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. This first verse introduces us to the idea of Emmanuel, God with us. Ransom captive Israel is a literal reference to God's chosen people and the captivity that they experienced in the Old Testament. They're literally held captive. In the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah, these guys are prophets, and they talk of Israel and their bondage and the redemption, the buying back, that God performs on behalf of Israel to restore them to their home, to take them out of captivity. However, although Israel was physically restored and physically taken out of captivity, they still experienced this spiritual exile because they were still waiting for Jesus to come. So even though they might have been free, they still had that longing, that that desire, that need for God to be with us. I mean, we get that feeling, right? We may not be in actual exile, but we definitely know what it feels like to be stuck. Stuck in a job, stuck in a relationship, just stuck. Longing and pleading for God to show up. Mourning, wondering, where are you? And we get that. And that's when the Course reminds us, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, 
O Israel. Verse 2 says, O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer. Our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark, death dark shadows put to flight. Now, dayspring is another word for dawn. It's a reference to something Luke wrote in Luke 1, 78. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. And so this verse, verse 2, is all about joy and light that Jesus will bring upon his arrival. Verse 2 tells us that the coming Savior will bring justice and honesty and truth. He'll bring light. He'll cast out darkness. And this will be possible because Jesus is the dayspring. He is that light that breaks through. Jesus is the sunrise. He disperses the clouds of night and causes the dark shadows of death to flee. And we get that feeling too, right? We are longing for Jesus to bring light. It's very hard to go a day in this world right now and not wonder, why is it so dark in this world? And we hope that Jesus will come to bring light to the darkness of addiction or to bring light to the darkness of pain or to bring light to the darkness of sin, to conquer death, to get rid of the darkness and the gloominess that seems to surround our lives. We get that. But then the chorus reminds us, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Verse 3 says, O come, desire of nations bind, into one the hearts of all mankind. But thou our sad division ceased, and be thyself our king of peace. This desire of nations comes from uh, the book in the Bible called Haggai. Haggai 2.7 says, I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I'll fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The ultimate desire that Haggai is talking about is this, this desire for Emmanuel. But in that is this desire for peace, right? This, this, this need for these nations to come together to be in peace. And since Jesus is the, the desire of all nations, he's the only one who can unite the hearts of all mankind and cause these divisions to cease. We actually talked a little bit about this last week when we talked about Silent Night. One of the things that entered the world when Jesus was born was peace. Peace beyond what we recognize. Peace so good that we really don't know what it is until we experience Jesus. And Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But what's really cool about this verse, that last line, and be thyself our King of Peace, it's almost as if he's been promoted. He's no longer the Prince of Peace, but the King of it. And again, we get that. We want that peace. We want peace in our broken relationships. We want peace through reconciliation for ourselves or our family or our friends. We feel that right now. Next week, a lot of you are going to head out and you're going to go see family. And the whole way there, you're going to be praying, God, please bring peace. Please bring peace. Please bring peace. And we get that. And then the chorus reminds us, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. This song is a beautiful reminder that God is with us, that God will be with us. And to be honest, the thing that we struggle with the most is that God was with us, 
that God has been with us in those moments of our life where we're wondering where he is. This song is a reminder that God was with you the moment you found out that you had miscarried. That God was with you when you lost your job. That God was with you when the person you thought you loved walked out. That God was with you when you lost your parent to sickness. God was with you when you were sitting alone wondering if this life was even worth it. That God was with you in your darkest hour. That God was with you when you weren't even sure he was real. That God was with you when you thought he was to blame for the pain in your life. That God was with you when you needed him most. And God was with you when you thought you didn't need him at all. The song reminds us that God was with you through the ups and the downs, through the light and the dark, and that God is still with you. He's still with you right now, and he won't leave you. Matthew 28, verse 20 says this, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5, it says, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. This song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is a reminder that life is hard. It's a reminder that we need a Savior. That God came to us in the form of a child. And that God being with us isn't a fleeting moment, but forever. But in order for that to be true, in order for that to really matter in your own life, you have to have faith. You have to have faith that Jesus is God with us. You have to have faith that God is with you through the ups and downs. And you have to have faith that God hasn't abandoned you. In high school, um, I went to church camp. Don't judge me. That's a story for another time. Um, So I went to church camp, and while I was there, I I made a really good friend. Her name is Michelle. And immediately became really good friends, and I got to know her pretty, pretty well throughout high school. During the summers, like, we'd meet up with our friends at church camp. And again, don't judge me. Um, story for another time. But in the summers, we got to know each other really well. And, like, my friends and her friends, they were up in Pennsylvania. We all started to hang out. Um, my senior year of high school actually introduced her to her future husband, who's one of my best friends. And I got to be in their wedding, which was awesome. But over the years, I've gotten to know her really well. And this is a girl who's been through a lot. Right after she was born, her mother passed away from cancer. Her dad remarried uh, an amazing and wonderful woman that Michelle loves dearly. But because of the loss of her mom, Michelle's desire was always to have kids and love them with everything that she has. So as soon as AJ and Michelle got married around eight years ago, all their friends knew that plan one was kids because of her desire just to, to have a family and to love them. And at first, they were young, so they weren't overly stressed. But as the months turned into years, and they found out they weren't pregnant over and over and over again, it began to take a toll. At the time, my wife and I, we actually lived in, in Tennessee. And I remember we would drive back to Northern Virginia to see my family where, they, where our friends lived. And we'd end up staying up till, with them until 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And always the conversations were, how's life? How's Tennessee? Terrible. Um, but it always turned to the struggles that they were going through to get pregnant. And we'd sit with them in their living room and watch them cry. Cry because every piece of Michelle just wanted to be a mom. 
And I'd, I'd cry, and you'd see AJ, and he would cry because his whole family had three other brothers, and all of them were having kids, and all of them were, were, were you know, bringing grandparents into the fold. But every time they went home, the question was, are you pregnant yet? And for years, that's what happened. For years, they tried to get pregnant and just couldn't. And for years, my wife and I would come home, we'd sit down with them, and we'd talk. Most of the time, not having answers. To be honest, most of the time, not understanding fully. But doing everything we could to love them and care for them. A few years ago, we noticed kind of a shift in their attitude. We noticed a shift in the conversation. It stopped being uh, this pain that they felt and turned into optimism. And I remember, again, visiting them and talking to the late hours of the morning and, and trying to figure out, okay, what had changed? And in a moment, we were sitting on their couch, and I remember looking over, and there's this little stuffed shark sitting in the corner. And I remember looking at that thinking, oh my gosh, like, they're pregnant. But at that point, we'd know them well enough, and we'd known them for so long, we stopped asking, Right? And so as we continued to talk, we didn't say anything, and we remained silent. And eventually, at the end of the night, we're like, okay, like, what's the deal with this shark? Right? Like, we've been here for five hours, so if you're pregnant, you would have told us by now. And they told us they bought this shark as a reminder to be faithful to God. They bought it as a reminder that even though they're in the worst time of their life, and even though they thought once they got married it would be perfect, and even though they thought as they followed Jesus, everything would work out the way that they wanted it to, this little stuffed shark was a reminder that through the ups and downs that God was with them. And they told us that their hope one day and their prayer one day was that they would be able to give that shark, that baby shark, to a child. But at this point in their life, they realized that it might not be their own. Maybe it would come through adoption or maybe it'd be a niece or a nephew. But for them, it was a reminder to stay faithful to God because God hadn't left them. Two years ago, actually around this time, uh, my wife and I, we had our, our child, she was about six months old, and they were, they were in Annapolis where we used to live, and they were coming to visit. And, and so they were coming to meet Elise for the first time, and we were terrified. We were so afraid of what that experience would be like for them. And I remember as they pulled into their driveway, as they walked towards the door, before, they even, before we ever even said hello, they told us that they were pregnant. And AJ cried as I hugged him. And my wife cried as she hugged Michelle. And it was this beautiful moment of rejoicing. Just a week ago, they announced that they were pregnant again with their second child. And it's crazy because like, you forget about that story. You forget about everything they went through to get to the point of rejoicing, to get to the point where Michelle can be a mom. So I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what exile you feel like you're in. I don't know what light you're hoping for. I don't know what peace you need. But what I do know is that all of us, no matter how much it hurts, no matter how high it feels or how low it feels, that all of us need to rejoice. Because the beautiful thing is that it's not Emmanuel is coming. He has come. And while that doesn't mean everything will be perfect, and I'm sorry that it won't, I really wish I could get up here and tell you that, that Jesus coming to the world made everything perfect, and it, it's just not true. Life will still hurt. There will still be pain. 
And it doesn't mean everything will be picture perfect the way that we hope it will be. What it does mean, though, is you don't have to do it alone. It means that you're not going through these ups and downs by yourself. It means that there's a God who loves you and cares for you so much and wants to be in your life. And that's why we sing this song. That's why we sing this song at Christmas. That's why this song is so beautiful. Because it's a reminder every single time we sing it, life is hard. Life hurts. But it's okay because God is with us. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that that we don't have to do this life alone. God, that you're with us. God, that you're with us through the ups and downs. God, you're, you're with us when we feel like we're in exile, when we long for peace, when we long for light. God, that through everything that we go through, you sent your son so we don't have to do this alone. God, thank you for Emmanuel. Thank you that this isn't just another word to describe your son, but a word that shows us so much of who you are and how much you love us. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen.